Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. This is a show for people around the world who are thinking and feeling deeply about global climate change and other environmental issues that are affecting us as people around the world. And here the show that we really get into our different kinds of feelings and our different kinds of emotions, and we go deep into that. It's a rare opportunity, and we're really glad to have it. Um, please make sure to find us at climatechangeandhappiness.com, and please support us on our Patreon. And we've had a theme about art and creativity that Pano and I are very close to. And today, we're really lucky to have a guest. Hello, my name is Daniela Molnar, and I am an artist and a poet and a writer. And I work with themes of climate change and climate grief. I work a lot with natural pigments, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. And it's really great to have Daniela. I met Daniela uh, a couple of years ago when she, uh, she was teaching at one of the arts um, institutes here in Portland, and we had a talk on eco-anxiety and climate change. And so I've been able to track her work a little bit and also interact with her in terms of just general therapeutic work for people in climate and environment. But I've been really excited to, to, to explore Daniela's process and to, to learn how she makes her work. Um, and so we're going to talk about that on a number of levels today. Uh, and listeners, you can think about your own creative life in various in various ways as this as this comes up. Pana, do you want to? I know you've, you're interested in this too. Do you want to get us started? Yes, warmly welcome, Daniela. Also, for my part, very nice to meet you. This is the first day that we we two meet. We just had a brief conversation and found out that we have something in common. We both know a little Hungarian. You have much stronger roots there, but I got some family connections also. But uh, we would like to start uh, with your journey with climate change. I know that you've been doing many things in relation to it, but would you like to share uh, as listeners, something of, of your journey? Sure. Thank you for the question. I I think that my my journey with climate change, and it, it has changed a lot over time. It began probably when I was an undergraduate. I studied both art and environmental studies. And I actually focused more on environmental studies for a variety of reasons. So this was the the late 90s and I was learning about climate change sort of as this big thing that we knew about, but it didn't have nearly the same sort of scope or emotional impact that it has now. But I was working with forest ecologists um, in the Pacific Northwest who were starting to recognize the enormous impacts that climate change was was having. And 
it it really impacted me on a on a deep level and it also was the kind of thing that and i think many people feel this where i was like well i'm not sure what to do <laughs> um and that feeling stayed with me for many years um my my life went through various twists and turns and i ended up teaching as thomas noted at an art school in portland and i started a program there in 2016 um called Art and Ecology. And in that program, students, um, art students were able to learn about ecological issues and use it as a lens with which to um, fuel their art. And in putting together that, that program, the core course um, focused on climate change for obvious reasons. Climate change is this issue that touches on every other issue, every other social issue, political issue, environmental issue, cultural issue. Um, it's an incredibly complicated and vast topic. So I use that as the, the core course to orient us to these ideas. And in putting that course together, I just went deep into climate change research and frankly went into a state of profound climate grief where I was so overwhelmed completely just struck by the things that I was reading and had no idea what to do with it. And then was in this position of, of trying to teach it. And the, those circumstances put me in a position of really trying to, or needing to work through what I was experiencing with my art as I was trying to teach others to do the same. Um, so that's a little, that's a little um, bit about how, how I came to where I am now. And that's still really very much what I'm doing with my work. Thank you very much for, for share, sharing, sharing that. So it's quite, quite a journey and you already described many of the emotional tones you had and the, the earlier, what should I do about this? Which on one hand is, is a sort of question of what can be called practical anxiety. You know, there's a problem which has some uncertainty in it and it leads people to ask, what's my relation to this and what, what should, I, should I do? But, but it really sounds that it's much more forcefully struck you during that time when you were reading the science and then having this difficult role where you have to do something with other people, which is a responsible position, and then one may be quite torn uh, by the, the almost traumatic consequences of, of the information and this is something that many environmental educators I know have been str struggling struggling with so thanks for sharing that in intimacy. Yeah I think that teaching is you know it offers an opportunity to um, really work through these these issues in a in a in a forum that I, I like to think of any teaching environment as a, a community in which I don't have, and it, this became very clear to me when I was trying to teach about climate change, um, is I don't have the answers. You know, as the teacher, I'm not the authority. <laughs> I'm I'm working through it with everyone, and I I'm grateful, even though it was a very difficult course to teach. I'm so grateful for the opportunity that I had to teach it because it really put me into um, a position in which I was able to like more fully um, feel these these issues and um, feel them in community with my students. And they taught me a lot. They, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, this is really, this is great. I, 
you know, as we were planning our discussion, I I was thinking about my 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 use as not a professional artist, as, but my use of art personally for my own coping and identity, environmental identity and sense of place, but also helping other people use this and teaching therapists how to do uh, art, art therapy, essentially. And so I think, and then for the listeners, there's different kinds of listeners for this episode. Some people are just curious about this. Other people might be professional artists doing their own uh, work and their own sort of hero's journey with their art process. So it seems to me there's two levels with this. There's the uh, level one, which is just art therapy, where we use even existing works of art, famous paintings, poems, you know, uh, music. Pano and I did our music episode. We use these uh, as ways to channel and express ourselves and to find solace and find, uh, you know, find comfort and universality that other people have trod these paths across times and places. And so that's really helpful. And it, it's relatively simple, although obviously some artwork can be super challenging and really rock us. I mean, I you know, what is it? Kafka has a quote about, you know, art should be the ax that smashes the frozen sea within us or something like that. You know, so some artwork obviously is very challenging. But then there's the other level where people are actually on a path of creation where you don't know where it's going to go. Um, and and it, I say, I know, Danielle, you've talked about it can be really challenging and I know your work. And so we can kind of maybe go in two directions here about how, how people can you know, find, find solace, but also maybe at some point today, I want to, I want to, Daniel, you to tell us literally how you make some of your pieces so people can really understand this, this, this process for you. Where do you think we should go? Any, any thoughts? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll just touch on the idea of art. I think of, of art engaging with art, either making it or engaging with with art that others have made and when i use the term art i'm using it really broadly like to me the differences between a painting and a poem and a song are really just differences of of kind not of substance um so any type of art um i think it is a conduit it's it's an opening and it's a way to connect with someone who may have been dead for hundreds of years, <laughs> and yet still you're connecting with the spirit of this person. And that may sound abstract or you know, difficult to understand, but it's not something that I think needs to be understood. It's something that we feel. And, and because it's something that we feel, um, and I think it's just a very, very basic part of the human experience, it exists in all cultures throughout time, it's accessible to everyone, whether you make art or, or interact with art. It's a way to open up to someone else's spirit. And when you open up to someone else's spirit, you're also opening up to your own. So I think that there's, there's, there's always that available. Um, and I think it's a, to me, it's one of the most beautiful things about humans <laughs> that we've made this, this culture in which we can can freely share across generations and geographies and um, vast stretches of time, um, and I do think that it's it's a wonderful tool to use to more fully understand, you know, um, who we are and what what we're doing with our lives, and um, and then as you touch, um, there is like the 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 there's a difference. Um, between, 
you know, getting out some markers and some crayons and, and just letting yourself play. Or I think coloring books are a wonderful way to just let yourself play and kind of turn off your conscious mind and get in touch with that spiritual and non-rational part of ourselves that gets neglected so often. And then there's, you know, making art a central part of, of one's life and building an art practice. And an art practice is, you know, it's a daily commitment that, that, that is, that really is like core to my experience um, in which every single day I'm waking up and dedicating myself to the act of making art. <laughs> and in doing that, very difficult things come up in that process. I don't think there's anywhere to hide in making art. There's, there's no, there's no shadows that, that you can, you know, <laughs> crouch behind anything that, that you're experiencing um, is going to come up if you're making art in an honest way. And that brings its own challenges. It also brings um, tremendous possibility. So you alluded to the ways that I actually make the paintings, which um, I think of as really, really um, important. And, and it does kind of open up this, this double-sidedness of, of what I think of in my art as like this force of grief and this force of wonder. And wonder and grief are always in dynamic interplay in how I'm working constantly in, in a moment to moment basis um, in the paintings themselves. So I, I make a lot of my own pigments from natural materials and um, pretty much anything in the world can make a pigment, which means pretty much anything in the world can be paint. And um, if you're walking down, you know, a street in the middle of the city, something's going to be there that can make pigment. Um, so it really changes how how one sees the world when you start to make your own pigments and that the world becomes full of colors <laughs> in a way that's different from, you know, just seeing colors as like surface, but it becomes like a depth to the world. Mm. And then I also combine the, the pigments that I make with waters that are from different sources. So rainwater, river water, tap water. Um, ocean water, um, when I'm lucky enough to be by a hot springs, hot springs water. Um, and when you mix all these different things together, the paints that arise are really different in, in how they operate um, when you're actually using them um, in a painting. Um, they, they behave in ways that are a little unpredictable and very, very alive. And what this this pigment making process has taught me is that the, the materials that I'm actually using, many of which are rocks and plants to make the pigments, they are, they are extremely alive and they have their own agency. I'm not saying that they necessarily have their own minds. They don't have consciousnesses like human consciousness, but, but they have an agency that's very alive. And when I'm making paint, from water, which also has its own agency, and a rock, which has its own agency. And I'm combining them and putting them into a painting in which I'm trying to work through confusion and grief and, 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 and challenging you know, emotions and spiritual conundrums of all sorts. The rocks and the water will often like show me things that I couldn't have arrived at on my own. And often what they're showing me is this combination of grief and wonder or beauty and violence um, that is simultaneous um, 
And I think where it, it brings me in my work is, is this very fundamental but difficult to hold on to idea, which is that in any, in any exchange, in every single moment in our lives, we're constantly in this binary between, you know, how, how absolutely challenging the world is and how absolutely beautiful the world is. And that our minds really want to have certainty. And so our minds want to go either towards the beauty or the horror. Uh Either one is more true than the other. And, and they're both utterly true. And if I'm able in my art making or in interacting with other people's art to engage with that non-resolution, then I'm able to stay hopeful and I'm able to stay open and I'm able to allow myself to continue to experience the world in all its fullness. And that's really important for me, specifically in relationship to climate issues. Yeah, thanks for all that. That's very, very fascinating and feels most most important. And I can resonate with many parts of that myself and know many people who are searching for this difficult balance or actually the balancing act. I think it's a kind of dialectical thing that you, you sort of, there's some oscillation between the opposing poles, so to speak, and out of that the fullness of life may emerge in all its colors to use this kind of expression. Co-creation is another word that came to mind, both related to the uh, teaching and education dynamic. Stephen Sieberstein is a very interesting uh, climate educator and a poet who has written uh, in a fascinating way about the interactive character of climate education and becoming more aware of the problems of an hierarchical attitude towards education and being open to what can be co-learned and co-created in the moment. And what you, Daniela, say about the agency of the colors and different elements of nature, there seems to be a co-creation there there also. Yeah, that's beautifully put. Absolutely. It's um, the the co-creation or co-learning that I referenced with my students which is ongoing anytime I teach that's the case, is, is absolutely also the case with the pigments in the water um, and the paint um, that I'm co-learning and co-creating with them. And it really is a feeling of non-aloneness, which is important. Like it's this sense of, um, of being part of the world um, and part of a, um, a human community, but also a more than human community, which is, I think, completely essential to to working through um, some of these these very challenging emotions that come up around climate change. Yeah, I'm struck by a lot of parallels between other conversations we've been having. Um, we had the great conversation with Kim Stafford, the poet, about him speaking in the voice of other other parts of nature, and and also connecting with children and their sense of wonder. Uh, and reconnecting as adults with our own sense of wonder. Um, and then this other darker, more challenging theme of, you know, the penalties, penalties of an ecological education is living in a world of wounds. So once we get curious about this stuff and want to actually go to a glacier and see what's going on and actually experientially, you know, visit these places, it opens us, us up to this, this knowledge that then can, you know, as they say, things can't be unseen and unknown uh, so it's this, it is this rite of passage. I was talking to an old friend who was visiting and he's worked in Antarctica and he was telling me about, we looked at the map of Antarctica from 
from the South Pole, which I typically don't do. And he showed all the, the geology of the place and explained why these glaciers and, and um, ice sheets are so important to the planet and plate tectonics and many things that I just never grasped. And he's been to Antarctica 23 times and, and sits with this all the time. And there are people out there around the world, even listeners who are sitting with this tough knowledge. Yeah. So, Danielle, I mean, you do go, part of your work is traveling into nature and going to places. Is, and that's part of your gathering of the materials and your gathering of your own experience. Yeah, it is. And it's an important part for me. Um, you know, sometimes finding pigments means walking down the alleys in my neighborhood in the city, but oftentimes it means going into wilderness areas. And I, I had the opportunity to go to Alaska um, and hang out with some glaciers this summer, which was profound. Um, and I also lead others into wilderness areas and teach others how, how, to, how to do that themselves, because I do think it's an important an extremely important activity that is its own type of creative practice because you are exposed to what what could be seen as wound, a wounded world it is a wounded world and there's no way to get around that when you um when you start to to know what you're seeing but i also think it's important to note that a wound you know if you cut your finger that wound instantly starts healing. A wound is both, you know, the injury and it's instantly the process of, of, of healing simultaneously. And the same is true in, in, in wounds in the world. You know, even if that wound keeps recurring, which often it does with, with environmental issues, um, there's also a, a constant process of regeneration and rebuilding. And both of those things, I, I think, are really evident when, when we're able to, like, make ourselves open to these places and be in them fully. Mm. That, that's very profound, I, I think, and uh, re reminds me of, of many things the journalist Darya Mail uh, traveling around the world and writing about that in his book the end of end of ice for for example several other examples but perhaps what i'd most um, like to uh, ask ask now is the link between what we started with your uh, telling of the journey towards the reading of the climate science and, and teaching and then the art practice. So how, how did it go for you? Did your sort of body or body mind start doing things with art and climate science and how much was that conscious? And could you tell something about uh, that transformation period? Yeah, thank you, Panu. Um, I think that where I, I have a, a background in scientific illustration and so, and I've worked with scientists in various contexts. So the way that I initially started working with climate change visually was to actually re rely on the visualization of data, um, by which I mean I was looking at how the shapes of glaciers are changing, uh, most of them dramatically receding. And I started painting that shape of what's been lost. Um, and they're sort of elegies. Um, but I was also at the beginning trying to communicate information, really trying to like kind of sort through it myself. And that's not exactly what happened. I don't think I arrived <laughs> in the process of doing that at Clarity. I think what I arrived at was first a, a far deeper engagement with climate grief than I ever thought I would be able to do or withstand. 
Um, but I did do it and I did withstand it. And as I've come out through like the, the, the hardest parts of, of that reckoning, I've also come out understanding that the art that I'm making doesn't need to explain anything. I think that the work you two are doing in, in this podcast and in your own practices is crucial because I really do feel like the, what some of the core work of, of climate change is cultural work. I think we need to feel our way through this as much as we need to think our way through this. And so what I'm, what I'm doing with my paintings at this point is trying to welcome viewers into an emotional engagement with these ideas rather than present more information. And the colors are a huge way to do that. I do think that the, you know, the stones and the flowers that I'm using communicate something directly to our bodies that, um, that can't necessarily and doesn't need to be put into words. Um, and I think that people through art, whether mine or someone else's, can can kind of bypass the the parts of our brains that wants to find answers or find reasons or find ways to like justify or et cetera, and just feel whatever needs to be felt in that moment, um, which opens up space. It opens up space for for whatever's going to happen next. Yeah, yeah. One theme that we we were thinking about for this episode uh, as well as just getting to the idea of grief and ambiguous grief and uh, disenfranchised grief. And so I think that's a place to maybe round up our talk today. You know, we've talked about this in the podcast, you know, grief is, grief is, you know, a feeling, you know, that when something is either has been lost is currently being lost, or we can also have anticipatory grief about things that we're going to lose even in the, even in the greatest moments of our lives, we already have an anticipatory grief that this is going to end. It's part of human condition. Uh, but with climate change, we've got this happening writ large, you know, uh, so it's very ambiguous. What am I, what am I actually mourning? Is something in myself? Is it something outside? And this disenfranchised grief, you know, when someone cuts down a tree and I feel for it, but there's no way to have that be recognized in the culture. But so some of this is to flip it around. It's enfranchising the grief, right? So it's giving it a place. I, I heard a quote, uh, grief is love with no, no place to live or something like that, you know? So, so maybe we can end on this idea of enfranchising, um, you know, giving, we'll have to look at the definition of, of the franchise, but it's giving, giving the, giving something a role, power agency. So enfranchising grief or other feelings. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I mean, I, I do think climate change, climate grief, um, is a type of disenfranchised grief. And one thing that, that art does is it does, it gives it a body, essentially. It gives, it gives, it, a painting is an actual, you know, body where these feelings can live. And I think that art is uniquely competent at also holding ambiguity and not, not requiring resolution. So a painting or a piece of music or a poem thrive on what isn't resolved. Like that's the beauty <laughs> of most art is, is, is these competing forces within it. And that, you know, holding, holding those in dynamic equilibrium in a painting allows us to do the same. It allows us to, to feel both the, the grief and the wonder, and it allows us to understand that those, those are both very present in our lives and that both deserve attention and, and, and 
um, and our, our, our ourselves, but we, we can bring ourselves fully to both. Um, that's wonderfully put, I think. Thanks. Thanks for that. And also, Thomas, for what you spoke about earlier. And I'm leading a course at the University of Helsinki. I designed about eco-anxiety and various disciplines. So one could call it ecological distress or whatever. So one lecture is about various forms of grief and loss and sadness. And one is about arts or art-based methods where I'm inviting people who know more about that than me. Of course, I do have some, some art practices myself, but my dear colleague Henrika Ulrisku, for example, who has been exploring the many possible functions that art can have in relation to ecological themes and climate and sometimes challenging us and sometimes providing opportunities to explore something and we may still not get it after we leave the room that what what we what has actually hap- happened so i completely agree that there's great potential and we don't always need to or are even not able to ra- ra- rationally name it that what's what's going on but still it's still it's important and Enfranchising, sorry for the Finnish pronunciation, grief is a great line. And I was just thinking about here uh, ambiguous loss and perhaps ambiguous joy might be named also. Mm-hmm. That's related to the normativity around climate emotions. And some people are struggling that uh, can I express joy because the situation is so gloomy? And what I hear you say, Daniela, uh, is, is that we should really give room and space for all kinds of feelings, including joy. So, mm-hmm. am, am I right? This is, of course, also my opinion. So <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. And yeah, I love that. I love that um, that you brought up that that phrase ambiguous joy because joy is different from happiness and grief is different from sadness right both are far larger um and more complicated and i think more elemental to the human experience but yeah ambiguous joy we need joy in our lives and i think that that beauty is 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 both of those things you know when we talk about non-resolution and a work of art and how it has that dynamic equilibrium that's what beauty is it's that tension um and and the world is beautiful you know the world is incredibly beautiful even as it's incredibly wounded and to allow ourselves to um to experience both fully is is really um a way to to live in the world um and live our lives fully and live in a way that um, moves us into different cultural territory that i think is um essential Yeah, that's a beautiful way to kind of bring us back to our mission statement for this podcast, you know, climate change and happiness. What does it mean to feel happier, to feel these kinds of things? And this idea of ambiguous joy is something we're we're groping groping toward in all these episodes. But I thought we did a great job coming back to the feelings um, and the core work here through art and through a conversation of art. So, Daniela, thank you so much for coming in. This is just a taste of your work, but we'll have some links and a great video of your of your process on our show notes. And I really wish you luck with your shows in Oakland coming up this this, this new year. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for the work you're doing. Mm. It's been a great pleasure. All the, all the best and all, all you listeners take care also. Yeah, so keep 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 in touch with us at climatechangeandhappiness.com. Uh, we are a self-funded volunteer organization, so please support us so we can keep you bringing you these messages of coping and and um, ambiguous joy and see our donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com or at Patreon. You all take care. Bye-bye.